Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks again for tuning in to the Out of the Question podcast. Today's question is, how much do most people really know about American history? Now, I'm not going to give you lectures on that subject. I've brought somebody in who not only has been at this for a while as a professor and a preacher at times, but someone who understands that history is God's story unfolding. So without anything further, Roger Schultz, who is the Dean at, of History at Liberty University and has been there doing it for, I guess now it's going on 20 years, right, Roger? Just about 20 years here at Liberty University. All right. So tell us a little bit about what you do there. Well, I'm Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and that includes a number of departments, including the history department where I was previously chair, but also modern languages and mathematics and English and our ROTC programs and family and consumer sciences. Uh, we also have a Center for Creation Studies that's uh, in my area, as well as uh, our award-winning nationally acclaimed debate team and our honors programs. So those are the areas that I'm uh, associated with. Okay, so Liberty as a Christian university is likely a place where people who are trying to get away from the indoctrination of most universities might want to consider. Absolutely. What's your take on why there are so few Christian colleges that um, people have to choose from? What's brought that about? Well, it's an old story about schools that begin with Christian foundations and then drift away from them. Uh, that starts at the very beginning of American history with uh, Harvard University, which was an explicitly Christian institution at its founded, founding with a Christian mission statement. But a variety of things, people become lax in the faith, they seek academic respectability, uh, they're influenced by other sources, and then eventually abandon the faith. But if you look at American history, uh, the Ivy League schools were almost entirely Christian in their founding commitments. That's true of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown. Secularization doesn't formally doesn't begin until much, much later, but it's really a sad story. And I, I guess that as people waver in their Christian commitments and their theological focus, uh, then they become sort of lukewarm and like everyone else. How much do you think has to do with receiving subsidy from government entities that has caused most colleges and universities to go the way of status thought? No doubt that's a pressure. So there are different things influencing schools and their commitments. Um, one would be uh, government money. And by receiving government money, you may have to, um, to accept certain things that the the state or federal government hands down. Sometimes accrediting agencies put pressure on you in one way or another. Uh, this is something that we look at carefully to make sure that 
no outside entity will dictate to us uh, what we have as our, our core values. And, and at Liberty University, uh, we always have interviews with faculty members coming in to make sure that they are committed to Christ, they're committed to the inerrant word of God, and they share the mission, values, and standards of the university. Uh, we take that really seriously. Andrew, you might remember a book some years ago, probably 25 years ago now, by George Marsden entitled The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship. Yes. He talks about these trends in American history and how Christians have been frozen out of much of higher education. And that book followed an earlier book he had done, which is an excellent book, The Soul of the American University. And Marsden talks about the original Christian commitments of early institutions and then how they generally drifted and in the 20th century became uh, much more secular in their orientation. And that, I guess, is really what brings me to the question, how much do most Americans, and let's even make it a further narrowing, American Christians know about their own history? Um, Many people would be very surprised to find out what you just shared in terms of original educational institutions. But rather than blame it on the bad guys and say, look, they came in and encroached it, um, at least you have to give them credit for understanding how important education is in terms of shaping a people. Yeah, I'm afraid people don't know very much about their own history. Um, And this is true in universities and colleges. It used to be that history was more broadly required. The history requirements are slipping away. Uh, If you ever watch those interview shows where they talk to random people on the streets to see if they know anything about the Civil War or World War I or, you know, whatever the cause might be, it's uh, embarrassing to see the lack of historical literacy. It's really tragic. Oh, and that's probably due to an undervaluing of history and then also uh, a kind of apathy of history for our younger generation. Now, one of the criticisms I have seen, even with some Christian curriculums, is that in an effort to give people facts, they don't always interpret those facts. And so I've seen curriculums that praise certain people who maybe nowadays, if we were judging from their biblical world and life view and their application, wouldn't be heroes. So what's your advice to people who are currently educating their own children? How do you know whether you can trust a curriculum? Oh, that's a really good question. You're right. There are a couple of different levels. One is to know facts, when the Civil War happened, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, and so forth. And then the other is to put that in a timeline or to understand the interpretations. And that's a a much more complex uh, process. And sometimes you look at authors or authors that you know and trust and respect. Sometimes you look at publishers who's disseminating the material. Boy, the interpretive part of it is uh, a a really difficult and challenging thing. That's why students really need to go to a strong university and study history. And and Andrea, we can help them with that right here at Liberty University. Mm -hmm. So- When you talk about being educated, 
you know, I like Webster's 1828 dictionary definition that says being useful. And I think um, most post high school education in some areas and disciplines, people become useful, but then again, becoming useful without a worldview that is in line with scripture begs the question, useful to whom? Sure. I'll give you an example. And this was with our own homeschool for our children. As you know, we have nine children. Uh, we homeschooled them throughout their entire uh, growing up years. So the first time that they set foot into a classroom was when they, they went off to college. And my wife asked me to construct a timeline that would be useful for our children, one that could be used uh, in the house, a big timeline that would instruct them in history. And she figured that she had a perfect resource, uh, a loving husband with a PhD in history. How hard could this be? But I said, well, how do you want the timeline to run? Do you want me to start the timeline at the bottom of the stairs and run it up to the second story uh, showing some kind of progress in history? Or do you want me to start it at the second floor and then run it down to the foyer to suggest decline in history? Or do you want me to run it just along the hallway so it shows a straight linear movement in history or even just run it around the walls of the uh, living room so it suggests something of a cyclical nature in history? Now, each of those approaches to the Schultz timeline represents a particular view of history and its progress or lack of progress. <laughs> and my right. wife just said, why do you have to make it so hard? I just want a timeline for the children, that's <laughs> all. But see, that's an interpretive end. It's not enough just to have the, the dates and the facts, but then how do you arrange them and what kind of uh, flow do you show in history? I'll, I'll tell you a little story about this. Um, I went to Bible college for a couple of years, and I had a you know pretty good background in the Bible. And then I went to a university and I was doing a double major in history and philosophy. And I, I, I just had a, a wonderful education, things that I was really interested in. But trying to bring all of those things together was really complicated. How do you take a biblical foundation and then integrate it with m the view of history I had at a secular university, as well as a view of philosophy? And a friend of mine gave me this wonderful book by R.J. Rushton, he called The Biblical Philosophy of History. Mm -hmm. And what a wonderful study, because here you have someone dealing with history, but dealing with it in the context of the sovereignty of God, and also the meaning that comes from history, precisely because it is God's story and God is involved with history. And if you look at scripture, you find so many references to how history has meaning because the Lord is behind it. And, you know, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, speaking to all the philosophers there of Athens, has this theocentric perspective on history that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now that emphasizes God and God's purposes and God's sovereignty. And you think that's a really interesting thing for the apostle Paul to lead with in his apologetics. Certainly apologists today would try to 
ease into a topic, but Paul started with the absolute sovereign rights of God over his creation as he met with these philosophers. Uh, you know, you find all kinds of scripture references like that, talking about the, the, the authority of God, his power, how the nations are accounted as nothing before him. He is the one who declares the ends from the beginning. So the Synod of Jerusalem in Acts 15, there's a summation of the matter where the apostle says, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And I think most secular philosophies will argue that history is open-ended, it's chaotic, there's no rhyme or reason to it, and they end up saying that there's no meaning in history, or they have some kind of mechanical and fatalistic approach to it in arguing that, um, you know, according to Marxist economic principles, history is moving in a per certain direction, but without the sovereign hand of God, Christians have tremendous confidence and consolation knowing that our God is sovereign and he controls the destiny of the world and the destiny of nations. He controls the days of our lives and he moves history towards his appointed ends. Some people don't like that because they say, well, it's all prearranged. Where there's great consolation in knowing that our lives are meaningful because they are part of the sovereign plans of an eternal God who also loves his children. You know, you just said something that made me remember a concept that I first heard from Dr. Rush Dooney, that every ism, every um, way in which people will approach life will always have some aspect of predestination in it. When people react against, well, then it's all pre-planned. Well, isn't that what the way the state tries to mandate things? They try to predestinate life for people. So the real question is whose orders or whose plan is the one you want to follow? Well, I think that's right. I think that, um, predestination is an inescapable concept, and you either see the sovereign functionings of an eternal God, or you see the manipulative work of uh, fallen man and statist organizations. I'll tell you a story about this. Years ago, I was teaching a class. I was at a different college at the time, but I was talking about the Reformation and the strong emphasis of the reformers, Luther and Calvin, on God's providence. And uh, I had an older woman in the class and she piped up, oh, she didn't like this at all because she didn't like the whole idea of foreordination. And she was a Christian woman, but oh, she bristled at this teaching. Well, then the conversation continued and something about astrology came up. Oh, she was very interested in astrology. And she was very interested in how the stars kind of influenced our lives. I said, you know, you don't like the idea of God's providential direction of history, but you seem pretty happy about the influence on history of the stars. Doesn't that seem inconsistent? Well, she hadn't really thought about that, and she was going to have to give it some consideration. But people are in happy to believe in biological determinism. I have to be a certain way because my parents were this way. 
or some kind of um, inescapable environmental influence, they're happy to look at different kinds of determinism, but they bristle at the thought that God governs history. All right, so let me pose a question that I often hear. Um, I do uh, some work with mentoring homeschool families. I've worked with Christian schools in the past. It's going to be inescapable that people are going to transmit their biases because that's what we do. We have presuppositions and we operate off of them. If people are concerned on how to give an accurate view of history and they are waking up to the fact that their education wasn't good or insufficient, how would you guide them? Well, I'd say, first of all, you recognize your human limitations. And so if you reflect on your own schooling, you'll see limitations, biases, and uh, you understand everyone has some kind of perspective. Cornelius Van Til would talk about the presuppositions that we have as we approach things. And the real trick is to make sure that our presuppositions match the uh, truths of God's infallible and inerrant word. But everyone has a, you know, a mixture of their own thoughts, good or bad. No one's perfect. We're all fallible. But as much as we can, we try to make sure that our perspective matches the truths of God's word. Liberty University's history department put together a really fine statement of biblical view of history. And there are a number of points that uh, God controls the destinies of nations from Acts 17 that uh, you know, we all die, we're mortal, that Jesus Christ is central to a human history. He is the coming of the Savior and Lord. But one of the points, and I'm just giving them off the top of my head, one of the points reminds us of our humility. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We are limited human beings. But we have confidence that insofar as our perspectives and presuppositions match that of God's infallible word, uh, we can have great confidence that we're on the right track. And I think from my own experience, you rely on the leading of the Holy Spirit. There were times I purchased a number of books or a number of curriculum you know, items and then I was into it and I'm going, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> I think maybe I should seek to replace it or at least supplement. And I think that's part of the humility and recognizing that there isn't a clock ticking that says this all has to be done by a certain number of years or at the end of a certain number of months. If the goal is learning and understanding to be useful, then you really have time at your fingertips and to use it wisely. Yeah, we dealt with this as homeschooling parents. How do we make sure that we're giving the best preparation, finding the best books, giving the best assignments. And I always encourage my wife just to you know, proceed in faith, that uh, we're looking to do the best that we can. Uh, if our children are able to, to read and write and glorify God and be of service to other people, uh, you know, we're on the right track. And I think sometimes people are frozen by perfectionism. They want things to be perfect, and, and that's a, you know, a noble commitment or desire. But sometimes we move ahead with the resources we have, trying to be faithful as, uh, as we understand from the Word. And ultimately, we trust our little ones to the Lord, 
can believe that the Lord will raise them up. And our job is to bring them the wisdom of the word of God that leads unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And um, we entrust our little ones to the Lord. Amen to that. So before we get into the next couple of things I want to talk about, let me just ask you a little bit about Liberty. Does Liberty have a remote learning? I mean, this last year, probably lots of people went to remote learning, but I can imagine there'll be people all over the country who will say, oh, I would just love to have my students be under such teaching, but I, you know, either I don't have the inclination or the resources to send my kids away. Is there something that Liberty has that would provide for such people? Yeah, Liberty has a wonderful online component. From the very earliest years of the university, uh, Dr. Falwell wanted to reach people who could not relocate to Lynchburg and go to school. And so they sent out videotapes and things like that. And then with the advances in online education, Liberty was one of the earliest schools to do that. And so while we have a residential campus, uh, which is just beautiful, 7,000 acres, uh, state-of-the-art buildings, it's just uh, amazing what the Lord has blessed us us with here. We also have a very large and very successful online wing. So uh, if students, I don't live in Alaska someplace and they want biblical education, They can get a bachelor's degree in history from Liberty University, a master's degree in history from Liberty University, a PhD in history from Liberty University. That's one of our newest programs. But we have programs in English and writing and STEM fields. The number of programs we have is uh, is really amazing. So right now I teach an online course and I've got college professors from around the country who are taking the course because they want to get their doctorate in history. So they're already teaching, but they could never relocate here to, uh, to, to spend three, four years on a doctoral degree, but they can do it where they live as they're teaching their courses. And that's encouraging to me because that means that seeds are planted all over the place. And, uh, I know there are a lot of people who have been um, concerned about the direction of America, and that's not a new concern, but I'm experiencing more people realizing that uh, the the direction that our country is going is not a good one, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And what I started, when I talked to you about, you know, coming on and, and being a guest, I said, people are sure that we are in the worst time ever of American history, that political campaigns are so nasty. Um, People say awful things to each other. Now, granted, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter back at the founding or afterwards, but it wasn't always smooth sailing and this sort of Pollyanna view of what American history really was. Well, I'll give you a couple of verses from Ecclesiastes 7, because when people ask me about this being the worst of times, you know, the worst that we've ever suffered, I always like to respond with these verses. And as I say this, I freely admit that we've got some difficult and dark days ahead, right? We're really concerned about the direction of our country. There's all kinds of reasons to be concerned. 
But Ecclesiastes 7, starting with verse 8, says, The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. So sometimes when I'm speaking out and about and someone and someone who's really well-meaning and really someone whose concerns I share, someone says, why is it that we're in such a a pitiful situation of why were things so much better 50 years ago or 100 years ago, I always want to say, oh, you don't inquire about this wisely based on Ecclesiastes 7.10, but I never do it because uh, I just antagonize a person. But the verses are really good in giving us a philosophy of history or approach to history. In other words, it doesn't encourage us to be nostalgic and sometimes we are, you know, if we could only go back to the 50s or if we could only go back to the 30s or something like that. And it doesn't really encourage us to think in terms of declension. Why are things worse now than they used to be? Or why were they better then than they are now? It doesn't encourage us to that. It doesn't encourage us to be angry. And sometimes when I watch the news, if I watch the news at all anymore, I get a little discontent. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, the Bible says. Rather, it encourages us to be patient. It gives us a teleological perspective, right? The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And we'd have more comfort if we knew what the end involved and what we were shooting for. But there is a teleological perspective. What will the end be like? The end is better than its beginning. And it really encourages us to be expectant. What's going to happen next? We know that the Lord sovereignly guides history, and we'd rather be in a better position now than we probably are. But we also have confidence that the Lord is at work, and so we shouldn't be saying, why why were things always better, and now we have to, to endure all of these tough times? Rather be patient. Look to the end. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And again, that goes back to the idea, if people actually were students of history, they would know that in the early days of the Republic, when they had elections, it's not like each candidate from opposing parties said wonderful things about their opponents. Oh, if you look at the early elections of our country, they were just amazing. Now, we've seen maybe rhetoric ratcheted up in the last few uh, campaigns, but boy, if you go back to the first elections in our nation's history, boy, they were intense. The elections between Jefferson and Adams in 1796 and 1800, you know, the, the kinds of warnings about Jefferson, the kinds of allegations against John Adams. One that to my mind just strikes me as being so strange is that Adams was uh, bringing over mistresses from Europe. I mean, just ridiculous things, uh, outrageous things. You know, politics were intense enough during that time that the sitting vice president of the United States called out 
the leader of the opposition party or faction and shot the person dead, right? So when Aaron Burr Jr. dueled Alexander Hamilton, uh, the leader of the opposition party, and shot him dead, well, that's about as intense a political <laughs> dispute as you can have. We, I mean, it would be analogous to, I don't know, you know, Vice President Pence getting in a duel with Hillary Clinton or something like that. And, and so our, because our collective memories are so short, we don't understand what things were like. And if you look at contested elections in 1796 and 1800, the election of 1824, boy, these were uh, volatile elections. And because party structures weren't very well defined, because constitutional procedures weren't particularly clear, uh, tremendous concerns and uh, the vitriol, vitriol um, uh, matched by anything we see today. And I think people would be shocked. Now, granted, they didn't have a digital world that would pass along information, but it makes me wonder... How did people find out about things? You know, we hear things because somebody tweeted this and somebody else repeated it back or whatever, but we were not talking about a time of mass communication. So my guess is a lot of people just went about the business of life. They did. And so communication was much slower. News moved slower. I mentioned the election of 1800, which was contested. And um, because no one had a clear majority, went to the House of uh, Representatives. And for 35 ballots, they were unable to get a president. Finally, things broke in the 36th ballot. But it was in late February before uh, Jefferson was um, uh, elected president. Today, you know, if we have, uh, you know, a couple of days where things are uncertain or the certification takes a little while, uh, people are talking about, uh, you know, the utter disaster of things. Boy, it took a long, long time back in the old days. Yeah. I think it's a lot has to do with that Americans, by and large, have become an audience. Instead of being, a par instead of being participants in their own lives and the life of their country, they've become audiences. And so their knowledge of things comes from their favorite media source. So if I lean to the left, then I'm going to pursue these media sources. And if I lean to the right, I'm going to pursue these. But how much verification is done by saying, I wonder, could they both be wrong? Sure, sure. No, I think you're right about that. And because of the immediacy of our news, people are much more reactive and less reflective. The other thing that I think is funny about the idea that um, either things are getting better and better, the book of Ecclesiastes says, or people like to believe that things are getting worse and worse, what governs their hope? You know, if you're expecting that things are going to get worse and worse, then all you'll see is worse and worse. But I think a lot of people would be shocked to find out that there is a solid Christian a man who has been in education for decades, who's the dean of the College of Arts and Science at a university. I mean, that should be something that encourages people or to find out that there are people in business or in medicine who are actually standing up for the truth and giving people real information. 
I, I think sometimes people miss the good news because they're just so sure there isn't going to be any. I'll tell you a story about the very first chapel service I attended at Liberty University when I came as a faculty member. Uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. was still alive, and uh, he was in his 70s, and uh, you know, he was, people were asking him about retirement, but he said he, he didn't plan to retire. He had a 30-year plan. Now, in time, he had changed that to a 15-year plan with an option to renew. And towards the end of his life, he said he didn't even buy green bananas at his house anymore because, uh, you know, he wasn't sure how much time he had left. But anyways, at this point, he had a 30-year plan. And he said, what do I hope to do in 30 years? He said, I'd like to reclaim America and win the world for Christ as the Lord empowers, then 30 years be sitting at the gate of Liberty University and welcoming back the children and grandchildren of alumni to study here. And I haven't heard that kind of confidence and optimism in very many places. But here was Falwell who had this enormous faith in what God could accomplish. And he was looking at the potential for impacting the United States and then the potential for global evangelization as the Lord blessed and as the Lord gave strength. And uh, I wish I could bottle that confidence and enthusiasm and give it to all my Presbyterian friends because <laughs> there is something irrepressible about that spirit of what can be done with the Lord's strengthening. And I think that's a really important point, especially today, because if we think the answers are only going to come from our preferred group, as far as I know, Jerry Falwell was not a Presbyterian. Not a Presbyterian. Uh, he was a Baptist. Exactly. But he understood education. He understood that the future will be determined by the people who step into that future. And I think I think it's we're getting to a point, especially with 2020 being a year where things manifested. You got to see who was in the game and who was not in the game, that um, people might have to have a different orientation to who is my brother, who is my sister, not so much, you know, what their calling card says, but what they do and how much they are ready to pursue victory in the face of hardship. Yeah. You know, if you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you have a marvelous summary of the Christian faith and a marvelous summary of the Bible. But there's some uh, questions regarding the Lord's Prayer that I think are wonderful. And so in the second petition, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray for? And our children, as they learn this catechism, are taught that we pray that the kingdom of Satan be destroyed, the kingdom of grace be advanced, and the kingdom of glory be hastened. And I've oftentimes thought that that's a, a, a wonderful overview of what we hope to see with the advance of God's kingdom. Kingdom of Satan destroyed, well, kingdom of Satan may be doing pretty good right now, but we trust that the Lord will will rein that in 
and the kingdom of grace advanced as the church moves throughout all the nations of earth, and then the kingdom of glory hastened. And there's great confidence in those Westminster standards about the propagation of the gospel throughout the world and the belief that God would be pleased to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world. That's a, that's a pretty good prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a great prayer, and this explanation of what we pray for is pretty precious. And sadly, so many churches will not even have the congregation say it because they think, well, that's for that future time, which goes back to what you expect will happen often clouds what's happening right in front of you. Yeah. Jesus said, I'm saying this, that you may have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Indeed. He says that right on the eve of his crucifixion, John 16, 33. I, I wish people would reflect more on that, why we should have good cheer because of our confidence that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has overcome the world. Yes, yes. So I'm going to go back to something you said earlier when you were describing the timelines and you talked, you know, start at the, the bottom of the stairs or start at the middle of the stairs or go around the baseboard or go up on the walls. Would you, for, you know, briefly describe these different views and what you believe is the biblical view of history in terms of things progressing in time? Yeah, I think we've got great confidence from what the Bible says about the the triumph of the cause of Christ. Now, what happens in a particular country over time or my life over time, you know, maybe I'll have rocky, rocky times. Maybe the United States will have rocky times. We don't know those particulars, but we have confidence from the scripture that God's word will be fulfilled. Nothing returns to him void. And uh, we have confidence that the gospel will make progress in the world. And that's reflected in the simple statement of, you know, that Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 102. And it's reflected in that convocation hope of Dr. Falwell, the conversion of the world to Christ, recapturing of America. Now, how that fits into different eschatological positions, I'll leave that to the theologians. But we have a wonderful confidence in the truth of God's word and in the power of his spirit and in the completion of all of his holy ends. In fact, Andrew, let me tell you a little bit about a book I've been reading. I think this is wonderful. It's a Rush Dooney book, and I know that you you knew Rush Dooney. Yes. The Rush Dooney had done these radio broadcasts back in the 1950s. And they've recently been printed, and they're first rate. We we got copies for our children for, for Christmas. You know, we, we think they're really good. And so the biblical foundation is outstanding. The theological reflection, oftentimes right from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, but then the application that's so warm and personal. I mean, it's outstanding. So here's an entry on Providence. And um, I think the doctrine of God's providence needs to be proclaimed more because it's something that gives us such assurance in difficult days. Against this 
is the Christian doctrine of providence. Faith in providence is an assertion of belief that there is a purpose in all things, that God operates in and through all things to bring them to their appointed end. Providence involves the preservation of all things in terms of the divine plan, the concurrence or cooperation of God in every event, so that at no point is he ever absent or not in rule, and finally, his government in and through every event and thing. And the address goes on to talk about the inevitability of providence and, um, and the assurance that it gives to us. Here's another entry from a few days later on the decrees of God. But this one thing we know, that to believe in a God who is in full control gives meaning to every moment and every act in our lives. Nothing that happens to us is senseless or meaningless. The world is not out of hand or God out of the driver's seat. He is in full and absolute control. This means that there is a purpose to all things which faith and patience can discern and trust in. And so if you're living in unsettled times where these words are really meaningful, there's nothing senseless or meaningless. Right. The world is not out of hand. God is not out of the driver's seat. He is in full and absolute control. And the books you're referring to are entitled Good Morning, Friends. Three volumes. Three and volumes. What's interesting is I'm I'm pretty sure he did not have a wide audience when he was doing those radio broadcasts because it was very local. He wasn't national right. or international, but his words haven't um, lost their impact because God has not changed. That's right. Every book that I'm reading by Rush Dooney becomes my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have the opportunity to meet him? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, he was speaking in our area once. He spoke at a conference and he spoke at our church. And as you know, he was learned in so many things. So he knew a lot about the Bible. He knew a lot about theology. He knew a lot about history. He knew a lot about philosophy. But what I remember is visiting with him. It, I'd asked him to uh, to give our blessing for the lunch. So there's some families from church over at our our house. As he said the prayer, you know, a prayer of thanks for the food, then he prayed for all the little children there. And he said that these children and these children's children would trust in Christ until the end of time. Now that, boy, there's a remarkable perspective there in terms of the future, that not just my children and my friend's children would grow up to be Christians, but a prayer that God would bless our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, that they would all embrace Christ by faith. And, and as you know, he had come from a, a long line of ministers and people who really did suffer a lot for the faith. And so he told some stories about his parents and grandparents and the suffering that they had as Armenians during the Turkish genocide against Armenians. And if you wanted to think about people who were having really hard times, boy, Armenians in 1915, 1916, in the early 20th century, boy, they had hard times. 
And uh, some of them were martyred for their faith. Many had to flee their country. Many came to the United States. But if you're, <clears throat> if you're thinking about people who might dwell on the past and the misery and persecution of the past, Armenian believers would fall right in that category. There was something that was forward-looking and optimistic because of confidence in Scripture about what the Lord would accomplish through the power of his word. And for those who don't know, Dr. Rushduni was in his mother's womb when they were making the march out of Armenia, and he was born then in New York when they crossed the Atlantic. So when you talk about when it looks like things are dark, what God is preparing, the numbers of people who have been activated in their faith and, and had their faith have legs to it. Um, a lot of them look back to Dr. Rush Juni's writings. And so this was part of God's plan. So I'm hard pressed to say things are getting worse and worse when, when the enemy thinks that he is killing Christians and a premier theologian and historian and just a godly man lives through that and comes to be born in the U.S., I, I think it's very hard-pressed for anybody to say, gee, where is God? Uh, he's, he, he's, he never left. <laughs> yeah. But let me give you an example of difficult times. We've talked about the election of 1800. The 1790s were really difficult times in American history. And this is an example that I sometimes use in my class uh, Thomas Paine, who had done much to promote the cause of American independence, uh, would later come out as an infidel, and he had a book called The Age of Reason, which was uh, very concerning to people because of its assault upon Christianity and religion. And the French Revolution was uh, going crazy and becoming extremely radical, and because the United States was a new republic, the uh, implosion of a sister republic or another republican experiment was concerning to Americans. And then there was a whiskey rebellion on the American frontier driven by tax policies and it made it look like the United States was facing the same kind of uh, insurrectionary pressures seen elsewhere in the world. There was a police state that was being organized and there was political division between uh, Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson, and there was public immorality because of a grotesque personal moral failing of Alexander Hamilton. And in Washington's farewell address, you can get something of a sense of his concern, both his commitment to religion and virtue and republicanism, but also his concern about factionalism and how pressures might hurt the country. And then there was a little war or quasi-war with France, and there were alien and sedition acts. And so the 1790s looked like a really tough time. When the Presbyterian General Assembly met in 1798, they issued a pastoral letter, which sort of gives expression to all these fears about the things that are pulling the nation apart or have the potential to do that. They reference formidable innovations and convulsions in Europe, which threaten destruction to morals and religion. Scenes of devastation and bloodshed unparalleled in the history of modern nations have convulsed the world, and our own country is threatened with similar calamities. 
the eternal God has a controversy with our nation. And they go on to talk about dereliction and religious principles, immorality. We perceive, they say, with pain and fearful apprehension, a general dereliction of religious principle and practice amongst our fellow citizens, a visible and prevailing impiety and contempt for the laws and institutions of religion and an abounding infidelity, which in many instances tends towards atheism itself. They're concerned that people are rejecting God's eternal son, our savior, and are denying the providence of God. Now, the whole letter is pretty long and it goes on in this nature to talk about the corruption of the pure doctrines of the gospel, how the Lord's day is profaned, how family religion and instruction is lamentably neglected. And so the letter closes with this, um, this kind of a depressing letter. It's a, a real killjoy spirit. The profligacy and corruption of public morality have advanced with a progress proportionate to our declension in religion, every species of debauchery and loose abundance greatly abound. So this is in 1798. And at the very time that they're saying this, there's an outbreak of revival in Presbyterian churches, or has been in Virginia, and there will shortly be a revival of religion on the Western frontier and then in American colleges. I mean, we're right on the cusp of a really fascinating time where there is a new national turning to God, which is sometimes called the Great Awakening. And so in 1799, the Presbyterian General Assembly addresses this, and they say that there's cause for hope. They're comforted, they're encouraged, there's all kinds of sign that the cause of the Redeemer is making progress, and so they change their tune. But if you looked at the pastoral letter of 1798 in the wake of the French Revolution and national calamities, you would say it's about time to turn out the lights on America. <laughs> There's no hope. Boy, the cause is shot. And of course, in 1800, many of those concerns continued. But boy, we're right on the verge of really exciting times in national development. Uh, you know, I like to think even in our darkest times, there's the hope of revival because the Lord has brought revival before. Uh, this past Sunday, I preached on Malachi 3, which is a passage involving tithing, is something that, again, Christians may not do, may not, uh, do as they should. The emphasis on tithing is preceded by this language of turn to me that I might turn to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the language of revival. And here again, I think that if uh, Christians respond to God as he has commanded, that God will bring revival. In this instance, an emphasis on tithing and then receiving blessing and then receiving uh, revival, all of those things are packaged together. But certainly the Lord can revive his people. And that's our hope in history, that we're not sunk into our, our lowest state permanently, but rather that with repentance and recommitting ourselves to the Lord, uh, he can bring seasons of refreshing as he's done in Scripture and throughout history. Amen to that. Okay, a couple of things to before we close. 
Calcedon produced a series of lectures that Dr. Rushduni did on American history going up to 1865, and he's had lectures on the Constitution and books, This Independent Republic and the Nature of the American System. Are there other books that you would recommend to parents either to have their children read or to have them read themselves? Um, all kinds of books, depending on what the purpose is and what folks hope to accomplish. And so, you know, what I've chosen as um, a text for college age students, it might not work as well for homeschool students. Uh, my wife uh, used an older book called The Story of Liberty, which she really liked and, and I think our children enjoyed. So there's a, a lot of a lot of good books out there. I hesitate to to recommend things I use for a collegiate audience for things that folks would use in homeschooling. But I remember this one book that my, my wife used in life. Um, okay. So in terms of, let's say, reliable publishers or, you know, I have a practice when I'm going to buy a book and I'm not sure whether I should or not. I usually will go to the index and find something that I know I have a definite opinion about and then see what the author says. And if it seems like enough in line and the table of contents seem interesting, then I pursue it. Do you have a sort of method for people to adjudicate whether or not this is a good resource or not? Sure. And that's one of the things that I've done. In fact, I actually did this for a school board member once in a local school district they were selecting new textbooks and she wanted me to evaluate the different books. So I created a, a kind of a template to see how did they treat the Puritans? How did they treat, uh, you know, U S constitution, the American revolution, how did they treat religion in general? And so I worked through the text to see what was available, but find a topic that you're really interested in and, and see how the book handles that. Oftentimes if there's a Christian publisher involved, I, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. Even though that Christian publisher may get certain issues wrong, I know that their goal is to be God-honoring and to bring people to Christ. So sometimes I'll look at them and they'll, I'll say, boy, they've really missed on the Puritans. But I right. still think that their overall purpose is a, a valuable one. Yeah. And nowadays, with being able to go and see reviews online and things like that, you can only be so wrong and most things don't cost that much. So it's not like you had to mortgage your house to get good yeah. books. Andrew, I'll tell you a story. I know that you um, have uh, many homeschooling listeners. I was talking to a friend of mine who has a day job, but he also produces homeschool material on the side. And he said, this has been an incredible year for them. Their business has been doing well and it's been growing, but they can't keep up with the demand over the last year. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's so he's thinking about quitting his day job just to be able to provide materials for homeschoolers. And I, he's a very well-educated person. I think does a great job with it. Right. But, uh, you know, with all of the downside with uh, COVID-19 and there's a significant downside, one of the things that it encouraged was for people to educate their children at home. Mm -hmm. So I told him that I said, this has been a blessing that this disease has forced parents to rethink education. He said, absolutely. And that's why if you just look, I mean, God has much higher than the 30,000 foot view. And we just have to realize that we do our part in this story. There are other people in other parts of the country and the world doing their part, but we don't write the story. 
God has written the story, and we just have to be found faithful. That's right. All right. Are you open to people who, as a result of hearing you said, oh, I, I have tons of questions to ask this man. I, I know you're busy, but are you open to people contacting you? Um, sure. Yeah. If you go to the university website, uh, if they just look for College of Arts and Sciences or the history department, they'll be able to find my contact information. It's, uh, it's R. Schultz. It's R-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z at liberty.edu. Excellent. Well, thank you, Roger. Um, we met, I think it was 2008 when you came out to California and were part of a Chalcedon conference. And just to tell you how some of the young people were there, they referred to you as the man with the big beard and the beautiful voice. I, I had young well, girls you. saying, I could listen to him forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a wonderful time. I really enjoyed uh, my time out there for that conference. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate you joining me. And you can comment on this conversation I've had with Roger or make any other uh, commentary you'd like to do. You can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.